Welcome to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. This is Sarah Richardson, and today we are featuring a conversation with Dr. Alan Young. Dr. Young is the current chief medical officer at Giant, a healthcare software company powered by artificial intelligence to augment the patient and provider experience. Dr. Young graduated from Keck Medical School and Marshall School of Business at USC with clinical training and experience with orthopedic surgery, general surgery, urgent care, telemedicine, and concierge medicine. He also serves as the SoCal Hymns CMIO Committee Chair, Society of Physician Entrepreneurs LA Chapter Leader, AI Med Ambassador, and Scale LA Steering Committee Member. Dr. Young currently practices medicine in the greater Los Angeles area. Well, Alan, thank you for being here in the studio with us today. Last time you were here, you were actually interviewing Dr. Anthony Chang, and now you're here to be interviewed. So appreciate you taking the time to be here with us in person again. No problem. It's a pleasure. I love sharing my perspective, especially in the topics of healthcare, technology, innovation. Absolutely. So your background, you're born and raised in Canada, medical missions in Haiti and Cambodia, orthopedic surgery rotation in Taipei, Taiwan, consulting projects in Vancouver, aging relatives in Canada, the UK, Taiwan, and the US. It really gives you a unique perspective on worldwide healthcare. Where do you see it being practiced the best from your experiences? That's a tough question. And thanks for highlighting some of the things that I've been able to do in my short career. And part of it is for the audience, I actually born and raised in Canada and lived there for about 20 years. However, when I was there, I wasn't sick very often and didn't use the health system in Canada very much. So a lot of the experience I've gained from comparative health systems in the world really came from after moving to the United States and comparing the U.S. to other countries. And one of the biggest things I've seen is that the measurements of what's the best healthcare system is variable depending on where you go. I look at it through a number of different lenses. One of them is accessibility, so being able to access healthcare when you need it. Uh, the other one would be affordability, meaning what's the cost on the individual or the family or the, or the ultimate payer of the services. Then it comes down to things such as efficiency. So if you're delivering healthcare, are you delivering it uh, effectively? Are you driving towards measurable things such as outcomes or safety or uh, extended life expectancy, decreased mortality rates, things like that? And so a lot of the measures out there compare health systems. And, and we know that comparatively, the U.S. spends a lot of our national GDP on healthcare. I think it's been rising several years ago. It was probably in the 6% range. Now it's exceeding 18% of our national GDP, which roughly translates to 10000 plus U.S. dollars per person spent on healthcare. And what does that mean compared to other countries? Well, other industrial countries of the same kind of level of sophistication in economics, finance, agriculture, other industries, they spend roughly $5,000. So we're spending almost double compared to most countries. And yet, what are the outcomes uh, that we see? Well, the sad part is our life expectancy is not as high as most of these other countries. So I think the average for us now is around 79 years. And a country like Switzerland spends roughly a similar amount, but they get three to four more years of life expectancy for their entire population. So that's a major discrepancy you can see by amount calculating how much you spend versus what comes out of that spend. And the other thing to think about, though, is do we have access to cutting-edge breakthrough technologies in medication or uh, physicians or clinical care? And I'd argue there that the United States does lead or is one of the leaders in the world around that. However, that kind of, again, translates into the high costs that we've seen. And so going back, I, I, my experiences in Canada and actually another country, Taiwan, both offer a health system where 
the government serves to be the largest insurer or payer of services and kind of controls and mandates how services are delivered. So you can think of it as a single payer system. I think the country of Taiwan actually models their system after the U.S. Medicare system. However, it expands it to all ages. So imagine Medicare for all, but actually without any age restrictions, so not just limited to the elderly. And so what that does is it creates a responsible, accountable organization to really deliver care and try to minimize costs. And so in other countries like Canada, they cut back on advertising expense. As you can imagine, here in the United States, we probably get bombarded with more advertisements for your health plan, for your hospital, for a drug manufacturer, for a cool medical device. We see it on television, social media, and everywhere else. And so that drives up the cost of care and then really skews the consumption of care as well. Um, so I know that didn't answer your question, but it's a broad topic. I'd love to get more into it, but I don't think there's one single best healthcare system out there. It really depends on the lens that you apply to it. You mentioned the cost of healthcare in the U.S. and how so much of it can be driven by big pharma and others. You're right. You watch a you watch a football game, and half the ads are are new medications being pushed to the consumers. So they can go in and ask for them by name to their physicians and, and use Doctor Google, for example, to get to that to that place. When you think about places like Taiwan and Canada, and quality and outcomes are always going to be really patients and health systems and any delivery organization of care is really understanding what they want to get to. Do you see that quality or outcomes are are substantially different when it comes to how much the spend is? For example, if all of a sudden we don't spend all the money on big pharma, are we going to have less healthy patients in the U.S. because they don't know to go in and ask for these different types of um, therapies or different kinds of drugs? Are patients in Canada and Taiwan not going in and asking for these and still living longer for that reason? That's a great question. It goes back to how we define quality. I know, especially here in the U.S., there's been more and more conservative effort as equating quality to patient experience. So a lot of it has moved to a consumer-driven model where we as patients have a right to report on the quality of our physicians through health grades or Yelp or patient experience scores that are sent to us via a survey. These other countries don't have that, and you see a market difference in the delivery of care. And I'd say that the patient experience in Canada, uh, one example is the wait times to get an elective procedure done. There's a bottleneck where you have to go through your primary care physician and then get a referral, and then that referral to a specialist tends to have a long wait list. So for you to get an elective knee surgery may take several months, whereas in the United States, you can probably get it scheduled and done within a week because the access and the, the number of practitioners is higher. And obviously, if you have the finances, you can go ahead and find someone to provide that. Whereas in a single-payer system, uh, there is a private market, but it's less accessible. In Taiwan, the delivery of healthcare is even drastically more different where I was seeing patients in an orthopedic clinic. And while I was seeing a patient, the patient that I had to see next and his or her family was in the room sitting on the chair against the wall, less than five feet away from where I was seeing and examining the first patient. And you can imagine in the US, we have regulations around that. And obviously that would not go over very well. But the result of that is that system is able to accommodate and see many more patients and deliver a high level of clinical quality to by being, allowing these patients to see a physician, as opposed to in some places where access to a physician is not available. And so going back to the quality and outcomes piece, outcomes is definitely driven, I think, by the number of touches that patients have with the system to can move them towards better care. But the quality piece 
is defined by the consumers and by the culture and, and the people that consume the services. So as a practicing physician, do you believe that there's a different level of physician satisfaction, whether is it higher or is it lower in these countries where they have a you know, Medicare for all or a single payer system, or they may even have um, a payment system that allows for competition within, you know, private and government uh, agencies to be able to provide those services. Are physicians happier in other countries? I think right now you could say that the United States healthcare system is making a more concerted effort to address physician burnout or what they call moral injury. And citing a e-medicine or Medscape survey that looked at 15,000 physicians across 29 different specialties administered last year, 44% reported specifically having burnout symptoms, 15% actually reported clinical depression symptoms. And so when you look at it that way, I think it's created a environment here in the United States where physician satisfaction has drastically diminished. And there's multiple reasons for that. But one of the largest is this feeling of no longer being able to practice medicine, but having to become an administrative or a clerical machine, meaning that the documentation around whatever health care we provide as physicians needs to be captured or else someone won't get paid or we may get sued or someone's going to come back to say we can't file a claim because we don't have the right information from you, even though all of that is already taken place. Maybe the care has been delivered, the surgery has been rendered, the advice has been given, but the documentation comes back and physicians spend a lot of time on that. I think that's one of the largest barriers to us having physician satisfaction. But when you go to other countries, in Canada, I think the complaint is there's not enough compensation sometimes for the work they're doing because of the cost control measures in these other single-payer systems, which explains why they don't spend upwards of $10,000 per year. Uh, the physician salaries are lower commensurate compared to the U.S. So a specialist in one country moving to another country will see a dramatic difference in the compensation or salary that they would make. And so I think it's now become more of a problem in those countries because with the information technology era, we know what other people can make and what other countries are doing. And so that drives in the younger generation a sense of inequality because if I'm going to be training to be a plastic surgeon in the United States versus in a country like Taiwan or a smaller country, kind of the standard of living is going to be drastically different. So it makes them feel a little bit underrepresented or underappreciated in their own country. But I think overall, a lot of these countries still maintain a, a sense of pride in the quality of their healthcare system. And when compared to other countries, they're spending less money overall and getting better outcomes. And so I think the providers in those types of industries have a sense of pride and belonging and want to con continue to contribute to that. Whereas in the United States, I'm seeing some attrition where you're in a system where it doesn't seem to be doing what you want for different patient populations. Um, I, we take care of certain patient populations very well, but I say the chronically ill or the underinsured or the homeless definitely don't get the high-level quality care that $10,000 per person per year should, should mandate. No, it makes sense. And share with us your story about the career path that you've taken and what key experiences or milestones prepared you for your current or future roles? And how has it formed your view on lessons the U.S. can learn from other countries? Thank you. That's a great question. And, and so for me, I, as I mentioned before, I grew up in Canada and started my undergraduate education there. 
I had the opportunity to transfer to school here in Los Angeles, up the street at UCLA, and studying microbiology and molecular genetics, and started to be exposed to the U.S. healthcare system. I spent some time down the street at the Santa Monica UCLA Hospital as a care extender slash candy striper, and then that's when I realized I wanted to go into a career in medicine. However, growing up in Canada, I had no idea what all these different acronyms meant in the U.S. Medicare, Medicaid, PPO, HMO, Blue Shield, Blue Cross, you name it. And that was just in at Los Angeles. And looking at the country as a whole, I knew the complexities of the healthcare system would probably be impactful to me as I went into a career practicing medicine. So as I went on to graduate school and medical school, I had the opportunity to do a dual degree. So I pursued my MBA, Master's of Business Administration at USC. And that really opened my eyes into the business of medicine here in this country and, and what drives decisions around revenue cycle and cost containment and reimbursement and drug discovery and development for FDA clinical trials and all of these things that contribute to the cost of medicine, which as most practicing physicians will not get a glimpse of until they're well into their private practice out of residency and fellowship. And by then they have this concern, why are things costing so much? Why is it so difficult to get an insurance company to listen to me? Well, I, I think that planted a seed in me that realized healthcare here is much more complex than the country I, I was born and raised in. And that really gave me a perspective to say, well, how can I impact healthcare here as an individual physician? And I realized that I started feeling I couldn't. I felt like I was one in thousands of physicians that would come out of the system and be forced to follow rules and regulations. So I think when I started working uh, in healthcare and had the opportunity to actually leave clinical medicine to do some management consulting work, I jumped at the opportunity. I felt that that was an opportunity to leverage my business degree that I had spent so much time and effort to get and also would combine the medical and clinical training that I'd already received at that point. And working for a well-known health system like Kaiser Permanente and learning about the electronic health record, I think that really drove me into a, an area that about the onset of a lot of the government mandates to deploy health records. So a lot of doctors and health systems were now being told by the government, you either have to install a health system, electronic health record, or you have to pay a penalty eventually. And so working with physicians and helping them make that transition from a paper practice to electronic health records really opened my eyes to the challenges that things outside of clinical care can really change and shape how a physician or a patient experiences medicine. Um, so that brought me to want to work with an organization. And I started focusing in a leadership role here in Southern California and worked within a medical group, uh, helping really improve quality care, moving them towards value-based care models. So we're not thinking about living in a fee-for-service world. There was a lot of momentum towards value-based care models and then also focusing on the patient experience piece. And after that experience working with the health system, I felt that there was still plenty of barriers for individual health systems to really change the way healthcare is administered across the country. But I felt that as a clinician, given a leadership role in the business side, I can empower and enact more change. That's kind of driven me to discovering what else out there is going to change healthcare. So on top of the electronic health records, the next wave of things will be innovation, technology, new ways of 
automating processes, new ways of discovering drugs. And, and we'll talk about some of these, I, I hope, in this conversation, but things like artificial intelligence and blockchain and other things that have impacted other industries are starting to slowly permeate into healthcare. And I think it's going to have the same effect that the electronic health records had where it's going to fundamentally change the delivery of medicine and also either be a responsive to the needs and demands of patients or will drastically require physicians and patients to adapt to this new modality. We saw with the EMR implementations over the years that it really was done literally in the backs of physicians, that we, they were built as regulatory compliant coding and billing systems. And so when we think about the innovations that are being brought into healthcare today, what do you see that's really innovative in bringing the consumerism and patient slash physician experience to the forefront? How can this disrupt the status quo? And what main pain points are we going to be able to address with a new versioning of solutions that are being brought forward? There was a study by another former employer of mine, Accenture, talking about the the deficit of healthcare workers by the year 2030. And the numbers are staggering. The number of doctors that will be missing, the number of nurses that are needed to take care of our growing population, aging population, higher incidence of chronic disease. And there just doesn't seem to be enough medical students or nursing students graduating every year to take care of it. So what does that mean? I think that will actually decrease the quality, as we talked about earlier, of healthcare. Because if you don't have enough doctors don't have enough nurses, you're going to decrease the accessibility and also you're going to decrease the frequency of care. So these folks will not have access to see their physicians as frequently as they like. And as you can imagine now, there's probably a lot of barriers between a physician communicating directly with his or her patient for a lot of reasons. And But what does that mean? I think that means that patients and consumers are looking elsewhere to get medical advice or information. I think Google and WebMD have were really popular several years ago, and the number of Google searches for healthcare-related items is in the billions. And they even started their own company using that data to try to drive some insights based on artificial intelligence. And so I think that touches upon where we can see a potential improvement in both accessibility and quality and decrease the burnout on our clinicians is by leveraging what we call artificial intelligence, but was really just a a series of well-thought-out, evidence-based algorithms or decision-making potential tools that can help patients get to the care they need and also help reinforce the care that they receive. So what do I mean by that? If I have a complaint today and I have pain and I don't know what to do, if I wasn't a physician, I may show up in the emergency department. That's the worst case scenario. Or I may stay home and wait till it gets really bad. By the time it becomes something that requires medical intervention or surgery, then I go in to see a doctor. Well, what if I could just reach out to something or a physician and get an answer or an explanation or some advice about care or even a prescription early on to mitigate any adverse effects. The challenge is most people who don't have insurance or lead busy lives or don't know where to go don't have that capability. And so imagine if we could have applications on our mobile devices, which most people now carry, to give us instantaneous access to a healthcare system that would give you that advice. Unfortunately, they have versions of that. They call them nurse call centers or nurse helplines which are staffed by nurses. 
But oftentimes patients call and they're put on hold and they wait. And the nurse eventually says, you know what? I still think you need to go see a doctor today. So thanks for your time. You should go to the ER. And I'm going to make sure I document that in case you decide to sue us because I don't want to be held liable. And so that creates, again, a, a tremendous barrier where you now have patients reluctant to even contact their health system to get advice because they'll feel that they're being driven in to go see the doctors anyways. Um, but a lot of things can be taken care of at home. A lot of things can be handled with over-the-counter medications, with some diet, exercise, lifestyle changes, or a prescription early on. I mean, how many times do people have a mild infection, either for the skin or urinary tract, and all it required was an antibiotic for three to four days? And in honesty, as an urgent care physician now, sometimes I wonder what service I'm delivering to these patients who come in and travel 30, 40 minutes, wait 30, 40 minutes, see me for about seven minutes and get a prescription and go home. I'm wondering if I could have delivered this service in a way that would be more cost effective and more comfortable for the patient where they didn't have to leave the confines of their home. Yeah, I love that perspective because if, if I'm sick after hours, the nearest urgent care for me that is covered by my company is an hour from my house. And I have to go from my you know, enclave of the safe South Bay to downtown LA, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go online and actually use an outside service to give myself the care I need because it can be a, tele- a $45 or $75 video visit with an outside third party. Um, and that's where we're driving the technologies to be able to deliver the solutions that we know are most needed. And you mentioned maybe a patient doesn't have to come in because they can get that early prescription or you think about patients who are in these high deductible health plans and these narrow networks and they wait until they're really, really sick because they might have insurance, but they can't actually afford their deductible. They're just required to have insurance. So we've fixed a lot of problems in our system, but we haven't given enough options to those who may actually need it the most. So you have a magic wand. You're Dr. Alan Young and you get to fix like three or four four things in our healthcare system today that are most needed to be done to improve healthcare. What are you going to do? Wow, that's a tough question. Well, first, I would think everyone's entitled to a, a basic level of healthcare. I don't care if you are homeless, don't have a job, don't have the right connections, don't live in the right part of the country. I think everyone is entitled to a certain level of healthcare to address significant chronic diseases, life-threatening conditions, et cetera. And so that's one thing I would change would be to give every citizen and visitor uh, and immigrant to this country access to healthcare and the knowledge of where to go to get it. I think the fear and anxiety of not knowing if you can get healthcare prevents people from living their lives. They don't travel. They don't venture far from their place of residence. Uh, They have an anxiety level when they go somewhere they're not familiar with, or if something starts to feel bad, they're fearful of what the doctor will say, diagnoses like cancer and other uh, diabetes. These things are very stigmatized, I think, in in society where now you have to deal with this for the rest of your life. I think being able to give people in our population here in the United States that security of a basic level of healthcare would be the first thing. The second thing would be to really treat some of those rare diseases that really come out of nowhere. Some of my close family and friends have experienced this where a child is born and they they had a one in 250,000 chance of getting this genetic disorder and they have it. 
And as a result, there's not a lot of support for them. There's no cure. There's no research. There's no support groups for that. And so being able to create a community around these rare diseases, I think globally, is something that would help alleviate some of those catastrophic conditions that there seems to be no hope for. I think that's another area where healthcare, there always has to be hope. There has to be hope that people can get better, return to a normal life. Uh, even cancer, everyone has hope. There's We're fighting cancer all the time and coming up with new cures and people's lives are being extended. But some of these other diseases have no cure at all. And so how do you tell a family member if they're going to the best hospital in the United States that, oh, we don't have any way of fixing this. We can just offer you pain medication or you know, have someone check on you once in a while and make sure that you you know, live out the rest of your life without too much discomfort. But unfortunately, there isn't enough data sharing around the world to address people in another country who there may be a cohort of patients that had the same disease and they tried a non-FDA, non-US regulated treatment and that family or that patient experienced an in increase in their uh, you know, longevity or decreased mortality from the disease. I think there's a lot of effort to try to get this information shared across different health systems, but there also has to be a way of capturing that. And so that'd be the third thing is really around making technology uh, accessible to everyone in the healthcare space to allow us to leverage what we use on a day-to-day -day basis, such as the internet or computers or smartphones to capture meaningful data and be able to have that available shared without barriers of interoperability. So those are three. I'll stop there because I think I'm running out. No, but I love it. So as you, just as you said it, I'm like global interoperability as if we didn't think it was hard enough to fix sharing of information here within the U.S. But I love that. So you talk about the security care, the ability to treat rare diseases and creating communities around them, a really a truly global interoperability solution. But I love that around all of that, which is really the altruistic nature of, of being a physician, is you said hope is the number one driver for all of that. And hope isn't something that you have to to create, and it's not a technology problem. It's something that's intrinsically there as human beings. And I love the perspective of you saying that hope is how we start to bring some of these things together. So why is it so hard to do these things in the U.S.? Well, from my limited experience, it comes down to our country is definitely fragmented and siloed when it comes to decision-making and different patient populations. First example is the number of different states we have. So every state handles their state-run healthcare system in a different way. And as a result, the federal government doesn't get a consensus agreement on how healthcare should be administered, especially when you have the requirement for bipartisan agreement to drive decisions. We seem to be mired in a back and forth where one day we may make progress, but as soon as the pendulum swings and political parties change, that progress can be all undone. So that's my observation as being a Canadian citizen living in the U.S. The other thing as a U.S. citizen now, after being here for many years, is that we don't have alignment of the incentives around who is delivering the healthcare and who is actually controlling and making decisions based on the scope and also the, uh, I guess you could call it the market share of delivery. Uh, and case in point is some organizations are considered nonprofit. However, they drive their healthcare system like a business. They want to maintain margins. And the famous term is no margin, no mission. You still have to generate revenue and reduce costs. 
But where do those decisions come from? Do they stem from a nurse making a decision based on the needs of their patient? Or does it come from a CEO or CFO driving decisions based on the financial stability of a business, which happens to deliver healthcare? I think the incentives don't align as you go down that chain from the frontline clinical employees to the top line business executives. I don't think they have the same mission in mind uh, in many organizations. There's some out there that do. I, I think those are, are shining examples of the powerful impact a healthcare entity can have on its community when they band together and work to kind of fix some of these inequalities. Um, and it, it only remains to be seen which ones will truly make a long-term global or national impact. Because again, healthcare is so regionalized that things that are going on outside of California is very hard for us to always be abreast of or stay up to date about. And that goes to another challenge is that when we learn about something or hear something that's doing really well, how often do we ask ourselves, what can we learn from that and apply here? I think that's the biggest challenge as well here in the United States that all of these other health systems in the world are doing certain things well. Now, they're not known, nothing's perfect, but they managed to reduce cost, increase uh, longevity, decrease child mortality, provide access to a broad population. And yet we still tend to have this introverted view of saying, well, we don't, we can't really do that here because our patient population, our country is different. And, and I challenge that because the essence is people are people and disease is disease. And it doesn't look at your skin color, your gender, your age, um, or where you live until you get down to whether or not you can provide any sort of care that's available to change that outcome, right? And I think a lot of times we look at healthcare in the US as we're delivering the highest level of care because of the status of the country, but other places are getting better outcomes for lower costs. And so why can't we learn how to do things a little bit differently? I have to ask the question, of is there anything that other countries can learn from us in terms of delivery of healthcare? Yes, of course. I think one of the great things about being in this country is the level of innovation and entrepreneurship that I've seen in and among the clinical healthcare space. I think a lot of individuals who have been practicing medicine for years now are actually taking the lessons learned and pain points and going out and trying to find new solutions, leveraging things that they never thought they could have done before. More and more physicians are leaving the practice of medicine to pursue entrepreneurial pursuits or developing new medications or medical devices to serve not just their own individual patients, but to tackle the global or population health problem. And I think that, I think the freedom of being able to change your career or invest your time and energy into an endeavor that could do more than just deliver healthcare to one patient at a time is, is a remarkable environment we have here in the United States. As a physician, as a patient, as an innovator, how do people keep track of you today? What's the best way to find you, the best way to reach out to Dr. Ellen Young to dive deeper into some of your perspectives? Great question. I try to remain somewhat active on LinkedIn. I like to share, especially what's going on locally here in Southern California. Uh, I'm a big proponent of building an ecosystem or community to support those types of innovative and entrepreneurial efforts. 
So I'm involved in a number of volunteer organizations such as Southern California Hymns as a CMIO committee chair. I'm part of an organization called Scale LA, which is a co-working space for healthcare startups that just opened this year in 2019. And also an ambassador for AI Med, which looks at artificial intelligence and medicine. And so these organizations are all doing their own things to really empower and educate and help individuals within the healthcare industry learn and network with each other. So I try to remain active with those and support environments where people can come together and share ideas and learn from each other, which I think can translate hopefully into a much more national, if not a global mentality. And I think we see that now with the growing attendance at meetings globally that involve healthcare, such as the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco, the HIMSS National Conference out in Orlando, and a host of number of others where we see global healthcare leaders coming to learn from each other. Alan, it is always a pleasure to serve the SoCal HIMSS community with you and to develop podcast material with you as well. So thank you for taking the time to be in the studio with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for listening to the SoCal HIMSS podcast series. Special thanks to Callister Harmon, our audio and mixing engineer, for helping us produce our podcast series. Music